This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Banach, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybanach.com. That's langleybanach.com. Or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part one of a seven-part series on will contest-focused fiduciary litigation. This series is hosted by attorneys Christopher Hodge and Job Jackson. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Banach podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybanack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Hi, and thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Hodge, and I'm here with Job Jackson. Uh, I am a partner at Langley & Banack Law Firm in San Antonio, Texas. I started uh, working at Langley & Banack in 2005, straight out of law school from St. Mary's here in San Antonio and my practice over the course of the last 14 or so years has been about 95% uh, probate, estate, trust, and fiduciary litigation. Uh, over the course of the past five to 10 years, my practice has become 100% uh, fiduciary litigation. And Job joined us uh, about a year and a half ago and um, he's been helping out a lot in the fiduciary litigation area. Yes, hi, my name is Job Jackson. I, like Chris said, I've been with the firm for a few years now. Um, I graduated from Texas Tech School of Law, and prior to entering uh, private practice, I was a briefing attorney at the Texas Fourth Court of Appeals in San Antonio. Um, these days, I focus my practice primarily on probate, estate, and trust fiduciary litigation. And so as a part of this series, we're going to be doing seven different uh, uh, discussions on topics that relate to or center around fiduciary litigation. So our first topic today is just in general about what happens when a loved one dies and whether or not you have a will, whether you don't have a, a will. So, Job, what would you tell our, our listeners about if you have someone that dies in your family and you're wondering what do we do next about this inheritance thing, what, what, what advice would you give them? Uh, the first step that they have is trying to find if they have a will uh, for the, the person who's passed away. And that's so important because in Texas, there, there's two ways to handle a person's estate after they've passed away. You can probate a will, which requires having a valid uh, will, uh, which can usually streamline the process and control costs and, importantly, carry out the person's intent for what they want to happen with their property after they passed away. If you can't find a will, you're going to be left with uh, what's called intestacy, 
which is a process set up by the Texas legislature to distribute the deceased person's property uh, according to a framework set out by the legislature. And I think, Joe, one of the, the important things to talk about here, and we'll t- we're going to talk about this in more detail in a, in a later episode, but uh, your will and intestate succession or the, the decedent, when I talk about a decedent or a testator, so that's the person that died. And so the, the decedent's will or their estate is, is just what they haven't otherwise transferred to other people. And so by that, I mean, uh, and I think a lot of people really don't understand this, that when they go to a bank or they go to a financial institution and they open an account, there's a lot of times an option to check various boxes that basically take that account out of their estate or out of the purview of their will when, when they die and give it to whoever they are giving those rights to. So in general, um, lots of accounts in Texas get designated as either a joint with right of survivorship account or a pay on death account because it's convenient for um, the owners of these accounts to check a box that says, when I die, I want my son to get this account, or this is going to be a joint account with my daughter uh, or with my spouse or with whoever. And then they check the box that gives that other joint owner of the account survivorship rights. And so those accounts and typically most IRAs and most retirement accounts automatically have some of those features set in, but those accounts are not controlled by somebody's will or the laws of intestate succession in Texas. So it's really important um, when you're thinking about uh, how somebody's assets are going to pass to understand um, what happened to their accounts and to uh, go to the banks and ask, okay, are these a part of the person's estate or did they go otherwise in accordance with the contracts with the, the financial institutions? So, uh, but looking at a will and looking at, at somebody's estate, so Joe, what is, it, what is a valid will in Texas? That's the, a great starting point. It's okay, you think you found a will, but what actually is a valid will? Well, in Texas, the legislature is set out in what's called the Texas Estates Code, and it's formerly the Probate Code, uh, that a valid will must be, first, it has to be in writing, and it has to be signed by the testator in person, or it can be signed by another person on behalf of the testator, so long as that occurs in the testator's presence and under the testator's direction. And let me let me jump in real fast on that. Uh, the and so the signature, let's talk about the signature, is Texas law has been extremely, extremely lenient on what is, what is it required to be a signature. And so as you just said, somebody else can actually sign the document, sign the will for the testator. But in addition, other Texas cases have held that an X by the testator, if that, they intended that to be their signature, that that was valid. Or if somebody was unable to sign and their course of dealing in life at or around the time the will was done was to use a stamp to sign something, Texas law has found that that's valid. So Texas law, again, has been very lenient on what is required when when, of the actual signature of the testator. And so... You know, the step one for a valid will is it has to be, be signed, right? The second step 
is it has to be attested by two or more credible witnesses who are at least 14 years of age and who subscribe their names to the will in their own handwriting in the testator's presence. And that last board part is especially important that the witnesses actually have to witness the signing of the will. They have to be in the presence. Uh, a situation uh, that's been litigated or that can be problematic is if, for instance, you have a, a loved one who's in the hospital who executes a will in their hospital room, but the witnesses were actually out in the hallway when the loved one signed the will. So they didn't actually see him sign it. They were out in the hallway. Um, that That's a problem. And, and that can lead to an attack that the will is invalid based on a formality because the witnesses were not actually in the testator's presence when it was signed. Or let's say you have a scenario where they're in, they're just in another room of the house, or you have witnesses that are coming in and out of the room. And all of this eventually gets flushed out through a will contest and through depositions of the witnesses to say, where were you? Where was the testator? But in the event one of the witnesses didn't actually see the testator sign the will, then the will is presumptively invalid uh, because it was not actually witnessed. The signature was not actually witnessed by those two two individuals. Um, what's the what about the the age of the the witnesses? Uh, what does Texas law say? How old do they have to be? Uh, they only have to be fourteen. Fourteen and credible. Okay, and so but and what does it mean to be credible under Texas law, Job? Well, for, for one, you probably don't want someone who's a convicted felon uh, as a witness on your will. That, that's going to hurt their, their credibility. Uh, but really, when you're looking at a witness for a will, you want someone who can come into court. And the whole purpose of the witness to begin with is to have someone who could come into court after the, the decedent has passed away and could effectively testify to the court that they saw the decedent execute that will as their last will and testament. So really, you want someone who would be able to do that in a convincing fashion. And, and Texas law is also is also a little bit strict on who can be witnesses. And so, uh, if you're if you're essentially a family member, a family member that's within a one or two degree uh, of the testator, you can you can be a witness to the will. But um, but you know, if you're not, for instance, the attorney can, that is drafting the will can't inherit, can't 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 witness the will. But if you are a beneficiary, you you cannot. Uh, um, you in general, you can't witness the will unless you're a pretty close family member. Correct. Yeah, there, there's an exception for family members as witnesses. But for instance, if you have the situation where uh, a drafting attorney has included themselves as a beneficiary in the will, and then they're also a witness to the will, uh, they cannot take from the will because they uh, are a witness. And that would apply to a family friend as well. Okay, and so uh, so we've talked about we've we've talked about written wills and and I think what what we've been assuming was a written will is is predominantly a, a typewritten will. And so in, in Texas, Texas law also allows for someone to handwrite their will. And in Texas, we call that a holographic will. And so, Job, what can you tell our listeners a little bit about what's required to be a valid holographic will in Texas? Well, uh, the legislature is pretty clear that it, it doesn't require much. It, uh, the Estates Code provides that a will written wholly 
meaning entirely, in the testator's handwriting is not required to be att uh, attested by subscribing witnesses, and it's valid. So unlike, for instance, a typewritten will that you probably have provided, uh, prepared by an attorney where you have two witnesses that have to be there in the room uh, when the testator signs it, a uh, handwritten will uh, does not have to be dated, does not have to be witnessed, it just needs to be signed, and, and that's all the state's code requires for it to be valid and enforceable. And, and Joe, I've had an interesting situation in my practice where someone had they'd gone onto the internet and printed off what, what appeared to be a form of a will, and within the context of that form, uh, wherever they were going to fill in, for instance, who was going to get the property or who was going to be executor or where they live, they just wrote it in. And, and Texas law is pretty clear that you can't have a mixed written and typed uh, will. And so that, that will was denied uh, probate because it, it wasn't either wholly in the handwriting of the decedent to be a valid holographic will or it wasn't a valid typewritten will. And so it's just important to, to know the distinction when you're, when you're looking for a will after somebody uh, has died and uh, to understand the ramifications of that. And I'll add, given the, the leniency in Texas for the requirements for a handwritten will, um, a handwritten will could be on something, you know, the, the stereotypical examples, you know, someone writes their last will on a napkin in a restaurant. That can be effective. Uh, but if you're searching through a decedent's possessions to locate a will, um, a holographic will could be written in a notebook. It could be uh, written just on a scratch piece of paper. So you've really got to be aware of that, not just think, oh, here's a box of old papers. We'll just throw those away. No, there, there could be a will in there. Yeah, and similar to the, the, lenient, the, um, the allowance by Texas courts uh, about the signature of a testator, um, so too about the contents of the will. If somebody writes something, uh, you know, what does it have to say to be a valid will? And so does it have to say who the executors are? Does it have to say who the exact beneficiaries are? What if they get a name wrong? What if they get, uh, what if they list their property wrong because they put the wrong address in it? Does that, does that all make it, uh, make the will invalid? And so Texas courts have have really said just as long as the will has testamentary intent. And so just as long as the will uh, potentially lists who the administrator, who is supposed to control the disposition of the assets are, that's enough to make uh, a, a document a will, even if it didn't name who the beneficiaries were, because the assumption was that um, Texas intestate succession law would control. So as lenient as they are about signature, they are also lenient about uh, what is actually required in, in the contents of a will. And so, so typically when, when you find a document and you're wondering, is this a will? It may be you know, very clear that it's a will. Uh, our Texas courts require that what you offer for probate is the original last will and testament. So that's the original document that the decedent testator, the person who, who has now died, who signed the document, the original document, be provided to the court, be given to the court. Um, and, and so, but what if you don't have the original? Um, Job, can, you, can we talk a little bit about it, trying to probate a copy of the will? Sure, and in probing a copy of the will, um, it's not impossible, but it, you have some hurdles. And 
Uh, we've been approached by a number of people where they know that their loved one had a will, um, but they, they just can't find it. They tried to contact who they thought the attorney was that had prepared it and they've just run into dead ends, but they do have a copy of it. And when they go to probate that, the, the first hurdle that they're gonna reach is the fact that in Texas, there's a presumption that when the original will cannot be located and was last seen in the testator's possession, uh, the presumption is that the testator destroyed the will with the intent of revoking it. So basically, if you can't find it, if you can't find the original, uh, Texas presumes that they tore it up and destroyed it and did not want it to be effective. However, um, you can overcome that presumption uh, by putting on evidence that uh, is contrary to the idea that the decedent destroyed the will, or you can put on evidence that some other person fraudulently destroyed the will. So, for instance, there's a, a, a ne'er-do-well or uh, you know, evil sibling who you think uh, did not like uh, mom or dad's will that maybe left them uh, less of the estate. If you can prove that they destroyed the will uh, to try and thwart the decedent's estate plan, um, you can probate a copy of that will if you can meet that burden. A more common example of this, though, is uh, wills that are lost through natural disaster, for instance, fires, or in the instance of the Woods versus Kenner decision out of Houston, uh, a flood and specifically that in that case Hurricane Ike came through in 2008 and flooded the decedent's home with up a six up to six feet of water and uh, the loved ones tried to probate a copy of the decedent's will and they put on evidence and had testimony that the decedent's home was flooded um, all the papers in the house were saturated and were disposed of but that the decedent had never intended to revoke his will and never expressed to anyone that he wanted to revoke his will. And they were able to uh, successfully convince the probate court and the Houston Court of Appeals that they'd overcome the presumption that the testator had revoked his will by establishing that really the will was destroyed by Hurricane Ike, not by any act of the testator. And one of those other hurdles that that Job was talking about in probating a copy of, of a will is that notice is going to be ha have to be given to anyone who would be an heir at law of the decedent. So anyone who would inherit under intestate succession is going to need to be given notice that a copy of a will has been offered for probate. Uh, you, you might think that you should get notice anyway of a probate per proceeding, but generally in Texas, if an original will has been offered for probate, the only notice that's required prior to that will being admitted to probate is that the county clerk post notice uh, somewhere at the courthouse, and then uh, within 10 days or after a 10-day waiting period, a hearing can be held to admit a will to probate without specifically giving notice to anyone listed in the will as a beneficiary or, or any of the decedent's heirs at law. So it's, it's just one more hurdle to admitting a copy of a will to probate is that the heirs at law are required to be given notice. And another consideration to add is, you know, for instance, you think about 
the Woods versus Kenner decision that we just discussed with Hurricane Ike is that was a trial to admit the will. You had to put on witnesses. Uh, you had to find people and try and prove your case. And you're probably thinking that that's expensive, and that's because it is. So if you have the original will, uh, you're really saving a lot of money versus trying to probate a copy of the will. Now, now, Chris, another thing that we've run into in our practice is what about written changes on a typewritten will? So, so Texas law talks about this. That's a, that's a great question because a lot of a lot of people do do a will, whether or not it's with an attorney or write one, and and then obviously they put it away and they're not going to look at it for years, if not decades. And then let's say some life event happens that they have a grandchild or one of their children passes away or their spouse passes away. And, and maybe they, they get that will back out and they say, I want to make changes to it. And so uh, a lot of times in our practice, we, we come across wills that people have simply written on or changed. Um, and we call those interlineations in the will. So these are attempted changes to the actual will that are simply written in uh, in the original will or even on a copy of the will. And so our, our Texas courts and Texas law has, has dictated that interlineations into a will made after the will is executed are not valid unless they are all witnessed as if uh, basically a, a brand new will uh, was being done. Um, so if you want to make changes to a will, Job, after it's done, can you, can you talk a little bit uh, to everyone listening about how do you do that? Well, there, there's two primary ways to do that. The first is to just execute a new will. And it's typical that when you execute a new will, it's going to have a provision at the beginning of it that all prior wills have been revoked. And you execute a new will setting out the new estate plan that you want. So any changes that you may have considered just handwriting onto your prior typewritten will, you can just get a new will typed up and executed properly with two witnesses uh, setting out your new estate plan. That's, that's the most common way to have it done. The second way is to execute what's called a codicil. And that's just a legal term for an amendment to an existing will. Now that codicil has to be executed with all the same formalities as the will itself. So if that codicil is typewritten, um, it has to be witnessed, uh, has to be signed and witnessed by two credible witnesses. If that codicil is handwritten, you can get uh, away from the witness requirement, but yeah, I wouldn't recommend trying to do a bunch of handwritten codicils. Uh, but the, the codicil is the second option to do that, but just be mindful that it has to have the same requirements to be valid uh, as a regular will. And typically when you see a codicil, what will happen is rather than rewrite the whole will, which will say how you want your estate to be distributed, but also appoint an executor, uh, maybe list the powers of the executor, uh, maybe even set up a testamentary trust, what a, a codicil will do is it will change just a specific section. So for instance, if your will in section three said which one of your kids gets which pieces of property, you could have a codicil that just changes section three to adjust uh, which kid gets which piece of property. Great. Um, so uh, don't do interlineations is the is sort of the take home from that. Uh, do a proper codicil or just uh, re redo your will. 
Um, and so one of the one of the next topics that we run into, or one of the next issues that we run into, quite often are uh, personal property memorandums, and in in a lot of the wills and a lot of the forms for attorneys uh, that that we see that are still done today, there's always a provision that that says. I may leave a personal property memorandum, which I hope that my executor and my beneficiaries abide with, or uh, something, some language similar to that. And so what this is essentially attempting to do is allow the testator to, after the date of the will, um, handwrite or type a, a list of personal property and who, who, what beneficiaries or who they want it to go to. So, Job, can you talk a little bit about what has Texas law taught, uh, said in terms of the enforceability of those kinds of documents? Texas law is pretty strict on these that they, they aren't enforceable, uh, which is unfor- unfortunate because they're so common. I feel that it's very uh, uh, prevalent for attorneys to have uh, a personal property memorandum provision in their uh, form will, and you just see them all the time, but they're just not enforceable. Um, and when you think of this list where the will says, I may leave a list, uh, and then that list will decide who gets what piece of personal property, it, it probably sounds like what we just described a few minutes ago as a codicil, an amendment uh, after the original will's been executed that changes who gets what piece of property. Well, uh, just like with a codicil, in Texas, a, a written memorandum, if it's going to be enforceable, has to be executed with the formalities of a will. Unfortunately, uh, that's rarely, if ever, done because people have, you know, they, they sign their will, they see the provision, they think, oh, that, that sounds nice, I'll leave a list behind, uh, then I'll write years later uh, of which one of my children gets which pieces of furniture or art in my house. And unfortunately, they're just not enforceable. And so one of the cases that we we have dealt with, at least in the past couple of years, was was an actual will that that tried to incorporate a document that the testator was going to do later on, which contained what we call the dispositive terms of the will or the provisions that uh, said who who gets what or what percentages. And so in this instance, the, the gentleman had drafted a, a or had an attorney draft a typewritten will that essentially said, I want my property to go to the persons I've listed on a memorandum, which I will here and after give to my accountant. And of course, there were three different versions of that memorandum. And and so there are questions about its validity. But in general, the, the law in Texas is that it's very, very difficult to incorporate by reference another document. Uh, into the will. And I'll add here, you know, we've, we were just discussing, are these enforceable? And when we say that, we're saying enforceable in a court of law, okay? Now, it may have been the case that uh, in prior states that you've dealt with, with a, a loved one or uh, a distant relative, there's been a personal property memorandum, and everyone followed it, and it all worked out exactly as the decedent had wanted. You know, there's a list that they left behind that said, you know, kid A gets X piece of furniture and everyone followed it. That's that's great. But unfortunately, if you're in a situation where people don't agree 
and you have to go to court, you're not going to be able to enforce that document in court, even if there's been other situations where people just agree to follow along with it. Thanks, Job. And that, that wraps up our first episode, uh, which is a little bit about what what happens after a loved one dies and everyone's wondering about uh, what's going to happen to their property. Is there a will? Is it a valid will? And so we've discussed a little bit of the issues that come up in those instances. And so our, our next episode, we're going to be discussing the probate process in Texas in, in general and um, some considerations for uh, will contests, which are a big part of our practice. So thank you for listening. This is Chris Hodge. And this is Job Jackson. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600.